Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Truth is a matter of perspective in this electrifying conspiracy series. Deep State returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epic's. Get the channel or get the app. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Rutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 22nd. Today, the inner workings of the Mueller investigation, Al Gore passes the torch, and a history of presidential helicopter shouting. It's been a few days since the release of the redacted Mueller report. And in that time, we've seen a lot of new details come out about the inner workings of the White House and the interactions between the Trump campaign and Russia. But the Mueller report also tells us a lot about the investigators themselves, where they went, where they hit dead ends, and what they just weren't able to figure out. That's what national investigative reporter Roz Helderman has been working on. I mean, when you take a really careful read on the report and it requires looking at the footnotes where they tell you who was interviewed and when, you can get a really strong sense of all the things they did, all the rabbit holes they went down and sort of how they ordered their work, what they looked at first, what they looked at second, what they were still looking at even into 2019, just a few weeks before they completed their report. What were some of the surprises that you saw in there? I had a story today looking at just how hard they worked to see if that conspiracy case between the Trump campaign and Russia existed. We all know that they concluded that neither Trump nor anyone in his campaign did criminally conspire with Russia. But that was a case that they took very seriously. I've seen some speculation out there that maybe they figured that out within a couple of months and sort of were just looking at obstruction for a really long time. That's not true. You have these extended periods of time, particularly in the fall of 2018, where they were very aggressively still exploring that case, both with Paul Manafort and also the question of whether Russia Roger Stone had conspired in some way with WikiLeaks to affect the election. What were some of the challenges that they came up against when they were trying to figure out the answers to those questions? Yeah, some of those challenges they told us in the report, and some I think we figured out through some additional reporting. So they said that some witnesses lied to them. That's obviously a major problem. It makes it very difficult if you've got important witnesses like Paul Manafort, who they say continue to lie until the fall of 2018. They noted that some witnesses used encrypted apps on their phones for communications during these key time periods. There's nothing necessarily wrong with doing that, but it means that their communications were not preserved. So there was no contemporaneous record that could be reviewed of what they were doing. A lot of important witnesses were overseas. So unless they volunteered to be interviewed, there was no way for U.S. law enforcement to compel them. So those are some things that are in the report. 
I think in doing some reporting, we also felt like it seemed clear that with some of these folks, there was a real sort of culture clash between the way the special counsel's office thought, which was really detailed fact-based analysis, and kind of the way some people who surround Trump view the world, where, you know, it's not necessarily about what the actual facts show, but rather about kind of a narrative and what you believe might have happened. How did that clash come out in interviews? Yeah, so we explored the experience that the special counsel's office had, particularly with this witness, Jerry Corsi, Jerome Corsi. He's a conservative author. He's sort of famous for having really popularized the false theory that President Obama was not born in the United States. And he was a key witness in that he actually told the special counsel's office that he gave Roger Stone advanced knowledge that WikiLeaks had John Podesta's emails. And so they wanted to try to figure that out. How did he know that? Where did he find it out? Like, when did he tell Roger Stone? Like, how how could you sort of prove that he had told this to Roger Stone? Because Roger Stone has absolutely denied that. And it proved extraordinarily difficult. He basically told them that he had kind of divined this on his own. He had sort of analyzed... Divined it on his own? He said he analyzed the emails that came out in July from WikiLeaks July 2016, noticed there were no Podesta emails, and so decided on his own that they must have John Podesta's emails. Now, this does not make a lot of sense. John Podesta did not work for the DNC, which is the emails that came out from in July. His emails would not have been on their server. And Dr. Corsi's own lawyer, who was an important source for this story, told us it was very clear the special counsel just did not believe that. And so they would ask over and over again, where did you hear this? And Corsi would do things where he would sort of say, well, you know, it's possible someone planted a seed in my mind that it might be true. It, what, what does that even mean? It, it's hard to know. Or, you know, maybe somebody told me this was true. And so this went on for weeks. And in the end, they constructed this really detailed timeline of everyone he was emailing and calling at the same time. And they sent FBI agents around the country to try to interview those people to just find out, you know, were you caught talking to Julian Assange? Did you ever hear Jerry Corsi say he was? And it all came up empty. Is there a sense that at least for Jerome Corsi, that that this was an attempt at confusing investigators or trying to obscure the truth? Or is he just someone who is like incapable of telling the truth when it really matters? Yeah, that's kind of a big question, right? And I think that's another piece of what they were looking at uh, while they had him in their sights. Like throughout it, they were threatening to charge him uh, with a false statement, to charge him with lying to them. And in fact, Uh, People may remember that they actually drew up court papers to do that. They wanted him to plead guilty, and he uh, published those back in November. So they thought very seriously about doing that. They they didn't, or at least they haven't so far. Uh, His lawyer believes that he was trying to tell the truth, but that, you know, this is sort of the world he's lived in for a long, long time. He talked about how Jerry Corsi engages in a form of salesmanship marketing uh, where he takes a fact here and a fact there and sort of ignores the inconsistent information and makes a sort of spun narrative. Mm. And that becomes true to him. Did you get a sense from the report uh, about what investigators were were thinking or saying or reacting as they came up against these challenges during interviews? 
Yeah, we did get some sense of that. Now, the special counsel's office is still not talking, so they did not comment for this story. But Dr. Corsi's lawyer from those sessions, at least, actually shared with us, read aloud from contemporaneous notes he was taking in the middle of those sessions. And so I actually did get a chance to hear a little bit kind of the frustration that was coming through. We cite this moment, you know, before they tried one last time to interview him in November, apparently the three prosecutors assigned to this case, each gave a lecture, basically, telling him how important it was that he not sort of try to invent or recreate. And we quote Aaron Zelinsky, who is this super talented prosecutor, went to Yale, clerked for the Supreme Court, and there he is pleading with Jerome Corsi and saying to him, you know, no lies, no hunches, no hopes, you know, wishes are not facts. So we know that the special counsel's team did not find conclusive evidence that there was a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia to interfere with the election. But at the same time, there are so many documented incidents of contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia. Like, is this the reason why there wasn't more evidence? Because all of these people that the special counsel's team were trying to interview were bad at being interviewed, bad at telling the truth? Well, the special counsel in the report sort of outlines the complications. And in some particular instances, they tell us about things they wanted to know and they were not able to find out. But, you know, we should take the sort of plain language of the report that they couldn't find the evidence. I mean, it may be that they couldn't prove the case because there was no case to be made. But there are particular things they said they wanted to know and they couldn't figure out. So, for instance, we know from some past court interactions that Paul Manafort, the president's campaign chairman, shared internal polling data with this Russian employee who the FBI has assessed to have ties to Russian intelligence. They say in the report that at the end of the day, they could not conclusively figure out precisely why he was doing that, and maybe more importantly, what Mr. Kalimnik did with the data once he received it. Now, after like 18 months of silence, Konstantin Kalimnik responded to a request for some information from the Washington Post just last week. And so we have an answer from him. He claims he did nothing with it. He passed it along to no one. That seems a little odd. The special counsel sort of says that this was an ongoing thing, that it started in the spring and went through uh, went through the months of the campaign that Paul Manafort was providing this data to him. I don't know why he would keep doing it if Kalimnik was not doing anything with it. And in fact, the special counsel told us they couldn't fathom that one. They couldn't figure it out. If there were still questions that were unanswered in the investigation, people that they couldn't talk to or get access to or answers that they couldn't get, why did they conclude the investigation? I think they felt like they had gone as far as they could go, right? Like, Kalimnik is in another country. He's in Moscow. They cannot compel his cooperation. He complained to us that he hadn't been contacted. But I think that that's not unusual because they couldn't make him talk. In certain instances, communications, they looked for them and they were gone. They had kind of hit a wall. And, you know, the country can't go through this forever. At some point, they had to bring this investigation to a close. But there is a part of the report where they say very clearly that additional information could emerge. Some of these things might eventually come out, and it could change how we view these events, and that people should be aware of that. Rosalind Helderman is an investigative political reporter for The Post. 
She and our colleague Matt Zapatosky are the authors of a newly published book. It includes a text of the redacted Mueller report, along with Roz and Matt's analysis and insights. It's available now as an ebook and will publish in paperback on April 30th. hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years. And the hottest of all was 2005. When An Inconvenient Truth came out in 2006, he was the guy up there on stage alone with his slideshow presentation. Super wonky. That's Dan Zak. I'm a feature writer for The Washington Post. Dan recently met up with climate change advocate and former Vice President Al Gore. And he says that the gore of today is a little less charts and graphs, a little more fire and brimstone. It was your responsibility during your lifetime to prevent the worst tragedy in all of human history. I felt like I saw him unleash the pastor that perhaps he once wanted to be but never became. And the fire with which he spoke, the emotion, you know, getting red in the face, angry. It felt like watching a civil rights leader, someone who had had this energy in him all along and has recently been giving it more license to express itself. That energy has led Gore to bring together climate activism and social justice. It's connected to social injustice. It's connected to discrimination. It's connected to voter suppression. It's connected to discrimination. One of the main focuses of his work is his Climate Leadership Corps training, and he trains people of all ages en masse, educates them on the science of climate change, and then, you know, armed with other panels and experts, teaches people how to be as active as they want to be. And so the way I view it is this is part of his effort to train, in effect, his replacement army Hmm. to care as much about the issue as he does and to be active. So his goal at this point isn't to be the face of climate change anymore, but to teach other people how to be the, the face of climate change. Yes. And that is that is how I viewed the transition of the public persona of Al Gore, because when An Inconvenient Truth came out in 2006, Inconvenient Truth was tremendously impactful. But the Al Gore that I saw in Atlanta for one of these trainings was very much someone who was sharing the stage with other experts and trying to inculcate 2000 people in this movement and build coalitions that will outlast him and gain strength from being in concert with each other. So you went to one of these training sessions. What was that like? He did the full two-and-a-half-hour, 641-slide presentation. Wow. Which was by... Like similar to the one from from An Inconvenient Truth. Yes, but like double the length and and (laughs) double the duration. And, you know, parts of it were gripping and alarming, and you could kind of feel people's heads explode in the room. And parts of it, you could feel the room just, the energy just bottomed out and, you know, (laughs) yawning and people dozing in their chair. Day one culminated that evening, a few hours after the presentation, with an interfaith service at Ebenezer Baptist Church with all kinds of spiritual and faith leaders on the altar. And this whole congregation was talking about the issue of climate change in these deeply moral and scripture terms. Hmm. And so the, the whole training over three days was this kind of 
wide spectrum of experiences and emotions from very wonky slideshow presentations to this kind of very moving church service at Ebenezer Baptist. And talk about what Al Gore was like at that church service. The You know, the complete opposite of what he was like in An Inconvenient Truth. I mean, he's always had passion for this issue. He's always talked about this issue with a deep belief that it is the most important issue of our time. But he's always, at least from my view, been quite reserved and level-headed, professorial. And he was raised Southern Baptist. He went to divinity school. So he has this core to him that is religious, that came from the church. I wonder if that shift in how Al Gore communicates about climate change, and I know that he can still be wonky when he needs to be wonky, but if that shift kind of reflects what he sees that the world needs right now, that if he sees this as a time for this sort of angry, morally outraged, philosophical approach to trying to get action. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly it. You know, the the public polling shows increasing movement toward A, acceptance that climate change is actually happening, B, that that mankind is causing it. 62% of Americans believe that mankind is causing it, and that's increasing over time. And so in the past, it was Al Gore trying to convince and persuade people. Now it's Al Gore realizing that, okay, he needs to expand his coalition link with other coalitions to get kind of action done. And I think coupled with that, you know, his politician sense of reading the country, reading the world and what it needs is his meeting with the Reverend William Barber II. Reverend Barber is a pastor out of North Carolina, helped revive Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign a few years ago. And, and I think when Al Gore and Reverend Barber met, they saw in each other opportunity. They had a shared moral outrage and could work together. And so instead of, you know, Al Gore going off to visit a glacier and film footage for that, he and Reverend Barber have been going to poor communities in Virginia, in Alabama, communities of color, low-income communities, and talking to people who are directly impacted by environmental degradation and climate change. So I think it's both Gore recognizing what the world needs now in terms of leadership, but also a kind of rediscovery, refocus of what coalitions and what communities have not traditionally been part of this conversation because poor people are hit first and worst by any kind of environmental degradation, and that includes climate change. And how has that message been received among Al Gore's, for lack of a better term, climate change disciples? I think it's been welcomed, and to some people it's been long overdue. For this story, I talked to especially women in the field. I asked them kind of their opinion of Al Gore, and they both said that he was transformational as an avatar for the change, but he became kind of the representation of how this was a very white, very male pursuit, or at least the public perception of it was. And that, they think, alienated a lot of people who needed to be involved in creating the social change that would result in political change. It was both a thing that was welcomed heartily by those people, but, you know, the Green Movement has been criticized as long as it's been around for not including all types of communities. And so to have Al Gore partner with Reverend Barber and then make his Atlanta training focused on environmental justice to these people I talked to, it was a huge step in the right direction. Dan Zak is a features reporter for The Post.
And now one more thing. The president has been known to hold impromptu press conferences as he boards his helicopter, Marine One. I can't hear your question. I can't hear you. 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 I don't hear you. I don't hear you. You got to talk louder. White House Bureau Chief Philip Rucker says that Trump uses the loudness of the helicopter to his benefit. You know, reporters all the time will ask him questions that he's uncomfortable answering, and he'll pretend like he doesn't hear, or he'll sort of put his palm behind his ear to pretend like it's so loud he can't hear it, and he'll just move right on to the next question. I don't hear you. You got to talk. You get to see that? You have a helicopter. A little louder helicopter, a lot of noise. He is not hard of hearing. He just chooses when he wants to answer. And he can sometimes get quite combative and hostile in those settings. I remember a few months ago, Abby Phillip of CNN, a former colleague of ours at The Washington Post, uh, asked him a question that Trump didn't like. And Trump immediately jumped all over her and said that she asked bad questions. What a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. But I watch you a lot. You ask a lot of stupid questions. Trump is not the first president to hold spur-of-the-moment press conferences next to Marine One. Ronald Reagan also did this back in the 80s. Well, I don't go much by what the Iranians say, ever. But President Obama was the complete opposite. He rarely spoke to reporters when he was getting on and off the helicopter, which, in its own way, complicated his relationship with the press. It would never dawn on the reporters watching Obama land and and take off that he would actually come and talk to us there. He almost never stopped by the, the press corps that would record him coming and going from the helicopter to take questions. And all of that changed with President Trump because he loves interacting with the media. And, you know, it works to Trump's favor to do these interactions in front of the helicopter noise because it's so loud. If you ask a question that he doesn't like, he can pretend like he didn't hear it, even though we know he can hear it. Philip Rucker is the Post's White House bureau chief. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories on today's show at postreports.com, where you can also read a new Q&A about how we make this podcast. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Don't miss this electrifying conspiracy series when it returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epic's. Get the channel or get the app. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.